Amen. Please join me in going to prayer one more time to our faithful God who always hears and always answers as we now turn our attention to his word. We need his help. He is faithful to give it. So let's ask him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess as we already have today that we're sinners and that we are needy people and that we come here powerless to do anything good for ourselves. We pray, God, that you would show up in this place. We trust that you already have, and we ask that you would continue to minister by your spirit in power. You have inspired your word and given it to us, and you have promised us that your word always does its work. And so we pray that that would happen in this gathering today. We pray that by your spirit, you would show us yourself within your word. We pray that you would show us ourselves. And we pray that you would show us our Savior. We want to be real people, but not real like the world would be real. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us to lift our eyes from our circumstances to see Christ and the promises that you have made to us in him. And we pray that we would be people who trust you in all things. Work that in us, even as we look to your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I aim, always aim, to be truthful with you guys when I get up here in front of you. And a few weeks ago, I told you that my introduction was not going to be a short one. I told you it would be of the longer variety. Well, today, I'm telling you the opposite. This will be one of the briefer introductions that I've ever done in the history of CBC. My aim in introductions, just so you guys know, is to draw you in. To draw you in. That's why we do them. That's why I do them. To draw you in to have a conversation around God's Word. So hopefully you're going to feel drawn in. Like, welcome. Pull up a chair. The fire's nice. Here we go. I hope that you feel not only drawn in, but that you will not feel any whiplash from this abrupt start. Like, brother, that was tough. You mashed the gas and not even quite sure where we are. I have four words. Four words for your consideration this morning. And if these don't pique your interest, I have nothing for you. One, evil. There is evil in the world. There are evil people in the world. And we suffer because of evil. Second word, justice. We all want it. Will it ever be a reality? It's a great question. Third word, love. We all want that too. We've been told all you need is love. What would unwavering, perfect love look like? Fourth word, forever. This life is short. Forever is not. So what do I do with that? What do you do with that? So let's look to the Bible. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up or turn them on to Psalm 52. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, no worries. We're going to get the... Verses from Psalm 52 up here on the screen. We will be looking at all nine verses this morning of Psalm number 52, written by none other than David, one of the great kings of Israel. So now before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us, beginning with the inspired heading of Psalm 52. To the choir master, a masculine of David, 
When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So my plan for us this morning, friends, is to consider the text in four points. We're kind of going to go over it relatively briefly. Say relatively briefly to make sure we understand it. Make sure we understand what David is communicating. And then in the second portion of our sermon, I want us to consider three major themes that flow right out of the psalm. So the psalm itself in four points and then three major themes from the psalm as the second portion of the sermon. So in terms of the text itself, point number one or heading number one, we will call the author and occasion. The author and the occasion that would have produced this psalm. We will find this in the inspired heading. So that heading that the ESV Bible puts in there, the steadfast love of God endures, men uninspired by the Holy Spirit put that there. But when you see this other kind of typeset on the top in the beginning of the psalm, that was there in the original text. So this is something that God has given us so that we would understand not only who the author is in this case, but also this is one of about 10 or 12 psalms where we know the precise circumstances that produced it. So that's important for us if we're going to understand it. So who is the author? I've already said this. David is the author. You see that. To the choir master, a masculine, as we considered a couple of weeks ago, a masculine is a musical term. It would have had to do with how they would have sung this, uh, even in a corporate gathering such as this. David wrote it. Who is David? We thought at length two weeks ago. I'm not going to say all of those things again because it took me about 15 minutes to do that. And thinking about David and his life, David, as many in the room will know, would become a king over Israel. He was generally a good king. We also know from Scripture that God made a covenant with David. He made a promise to David that David would always have a son to sit on the throne of God's people. He would reign forever in righteousness. This is what we sometimes refer to as the Davidic covenant that God made with King David. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant, as is the case with all of the covenants, in terms of their ultimate fulfillment, finding themselves in Jesus Christ. So we thought about a couple of times uh, lately, and we thought about precisely two weeks ago, what was the point of David's life? What was the point of David's life? And while I'm not going to labor this for long, it's just good for us to keep these things in front of us as we come to anything that David, inspired of the Spirit, wrote. David existed, main point of his life. David existed to get us to the Messiah. David lived 
and stayed alive and God kept him alive and gave him offspring so that the Messiah would come from that line. David existed also to point us to the Messiah, the Savior, the promised one. David, in the roles that he fulfilled for God's people imperfectly, would point us to the one who would come, who is perfect, who would be a king and a deliverer, the protector and the savior of God's people. David was chosen by God and used by God to bring about redemption, even in a circumstantial way with the people of Israel, and ultimately to bring about redemption through his offspring and to point us to that redeemer. Are there things that we can learn from David's life? By observation, sure. But the things that we will learn from David's life will be both things to emulate and things to avoid. David was a man, a sinful man, a sinful human being just like you and me. And he too needed the one who would come from his line. He would be the first to say that. The occasion of the psalm we also get from that inspired heading. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And we read that earlier in our service, which serves me quite well. And you also were able to assume some of that knowledge because we read that text together. Beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is the famous story of David and Goliath. We thought about that some a couple of weeks ago. Immediately after that chapter, some events begin to take place. David is made the head of Saul's army. Saul, of course, is the king of Israel at the time. Because of David's success and because the Lord was with David, Saul became very jealous of David. Saul eventually would vow to kill David, to take his life. So David spent a good period of time fleeing from Saul for safety in order to preserve his life. Doeg the Edomite, we know, during this period of David fleeing, Doeg the Edomite was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Saw David, as we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is on the run from Saul, aiming to preserve his life. He goes to Ahimelech the priest in the city of Nob. And we read earlier about how this man named Doeg, who was one of Saul's servants, saw this take place. He saw David. He saw David with Ahimelech. He saw what transpired. He stored away that knowledge and would eventually inform Saul of what happened. This resulted in the putting to death, as we read earlier also, of 85 priests in the city of Nob. And then the entire city, we read, was put to the sword. So every person, all the livestock, everything was destroyed. In the end of 1 Samuel 22, we read these verses earlier, but I'll read them again. This is David's first response, in one sense, to what happened with Doeg the Edomite. Psalm 52 would be the second response. So first response, David says to Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I knew. I have occasioned, I have occasioned, David says, the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So David's words in Psalm 52 about the evil man, about the mighty man who does evil, those words we should understand to be about Doeg, the Edomite. Now are they generally applicable to other wicked people? Sure. But they are immediately about this one man who did this horrible thing 
of slaying 85 priests and an entire city, putting them to the sword at the bidding of King Saul. So that brings us to our second point of consideration with respect to the text itself. We're going to call this heading number two, a description of an evil man, a description of an evil man. We're going to be looking at verses one through four for just a few moments together. Verse one, David asks a question. Why do you boast of evil? O mighty man, he's talking about Doeg. Why are you boasting in the evil that you've done? And as we're going to find out, why are you boasting in your own strength and in your own wealth, your own accomplishments, your own destructive behavior? Second part of verse one, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. That's an interesting term. Why are you boasting in evil? O mighty man, don't you know that the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day? Don't you know that the steadfast love of God is on his people? Don't you know that the steadfast love of God never ceases? Don't you know that God is greater than you? Don't you know that he's greater than all of us? And don't you know that he will not be thwarted in any purpose that he aims to accomplish? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Verse 2, we read more about Doeg, about this mighty man, this wicked, evil man. David says, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You are a worker of deceit. In verse 3, you love evil more than you love good. You lie, you love lying more than speaking the truth and what's right. Verse 4, you love all words that devour, any words that destroy And tear people down and bring ruin and devastation. You love that. You have a deceitful tongue. You are a deceiver and a manipulator. Doeg, you see, in this situation that transpired in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, Doeg was seeking his own gain. He was seeking his own advantage. That's very clear. He's aiming to advance himself. He is strategic in terms of when and how he conveys the information that he has to King Saul. Because you realize he's not just some fool, like some thug who doesn't understand anything that just kind of blurts out any information he has at some inopportune time. He doesn't do that. A lot happens between when Doeg sees David and when he actually then spills that information to King Saul. Some time has passed. And we read in the early verses of 1 Samuel 22 that Saul was worked up. Saul was warped out of his frame over the fact that nobody was telling him what was going on with David. He's upset also that his own son, Jonathan, has sworn an oath of allegiance to David and nobody's telling him about all this stuff. Saul was even to the point of suggesting that those closest to him were conspiring against him that they had entered into some secret allegiance with David and that they were out to get him. They were out to get Saul. And it's at this point in the midst of this kind of an environment amongst Saul and his inner circle that Doeg inserts himself and steps forward and says, oh yeah, I saw David. I can tell you about David. This is what I saw David doing. This is where he was. This is who he was with. This is what that guy did for him. And we know what results after that. The questioning. Ahimelech's response is reasonable. 
I mean, why wouldn't I help David? I mean, he's second in your kingdom for crying out loud. I intercede for him on the regular. This is not unusual. Saul doesn't care. It's a picture of the deterioration of Saul's life as the Lord has rejected him and has left him. The evil man, in verses 1 through 4, acts destructively and boasts in that destruction. The evil man deceives and lies and manipulates for his own gain and advantage. He loves deception and lies rather than the truth. And he loves evil more than good. It's pretty straightforward. Which brings us to our third heading. If heading number two was a, or excuse me, yes, if heading number two was a description of an evil man, heading number three is the promise of God's justice. Number three, the promise of God's justice. We're going to be looking now at verses five through seven. We just heard all these things about the evil man. We know what happened. Eighty-five priests killed, an entire city put to the sword. This man is boasting in all of these things. But verse five, God's got this, right? God sees this. But God, David says, inspired by the Spirit, about Doeg, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. Implied in those words is that he will bring ruin, he will bring down the household of Doeg. He will uproot you from the land of the living. God will take your life in due time. God will administer justice in all things with respect to all people. Verse 6. The righteous, we see, will see and fear. So there's a question here. Like, okay, God will administer this justice. Well, how will the saints respond? How will the saints respond when they see the justice of God? We get the answer. The righteous shall see and fear when they see the justice and the judgment of God upon this mighty evil man. It will put reverence in their hearts. It will put godly fear even in their hearts when they see God's justice poured out on a wicked person. Their response in that moment essentially would be, Lord, please don't let that be me. You realize that's how warnings work in Scripture for the believer, for the saint who's born again, trusting Christ, good with God. God is good with that person. That warning exists in the Bible to produce that kind of reverence and godly fear in your heart. May that never be me. It stirs us and encourages us and spurs us on to flee from wickedness. Verse 7, let's continue to think about how the saints will respond when they see the judgment of God. Excuse me, verse 6b. They will laugh at the evil man or they will speak in derision, right, with contempt of the evil man. See the man who would not make God his refuge. The saints know that God is the only true refuge in the world. That God and his promises of redemption are the only things to trust in. They continue. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. How foolish to trust in the abundance of your stuff or even in your own might or power. And sought, they say, of the evil man, sought refuge in his own destruction or in his own destructive behavior could be rendered. What a foolish thing to seek refuge in. Now, it needs to be said that this laughing or this derision on the part of the saints of the righteous towards this wicked man when he is judged should not be understood to say that the saints of God should delight in the demise of wicked people. That's not true. God doesn't delight in the perishing of the wicked. We know that that is true of the Lord. 
Rather, the way these verses should be understood is that while the saints do not delight in the actual demise of the wicked person, the saints do take delight in the justice of God being administered. The saints do take delight and even find some satisfaction of the soul in seeing God's righteousness vindicated. It has everything to do with God, His honor, His righteousness, His justice, His character that would produce that kind of response from God's people. Which brings us now to our fourth heading. Heading number four is the posture of God's people. So we've considered a description of an evil man. We've considered uh, also the promise of God's justice. And now we're considering the posture of God's people. We're going to look now at verses 8 and 9. You could say that part of the posture of God's people is to delight in God's righteousness being vindicated. That's certainly true, but there's more that we can say. David says in verse 8, contrasting himself to Doeg, to the evil man. He says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Meaning, green, meaning healthy, meaning flourishing in the house of God. How so? How is that true of David? He says, very, very next lines. I'm a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. God is good to David. God has shown steadfast love to David. And David trusts in and rests in that steadfast love of God, which causes David to flourish like a green olive tree. It is because David trusts in the steadfast love of God forever and ever that he is doing well and can speak of himself this way. He has made God and the steadfast love of God his refuge. And we know in Scripture that that is the greatest place to be in refuge in God, in the promises of God. And we know that God blesses those who take refuge in him. David has done that. That is what has caused him to flourish. Now let's look at verse 9. David's posture, he continues to tell us, again by the inspiration of the Spirit, I will thank you, God, forever, because you have done it. You have done this. You have done good things. You have worked justice. You have worked redemption. All of the great things that you have done, Lord, you have accomplished all of this. You have even caused me to flourish. And then God says, or excuse me, God says through David, David writes, I will wait for your name, Lord, for it is good. Your name is good. I will wait for it. I will hope in your name in the presence of the godly. And to say that he waits on or hopes in God's name is simply to say that I wait on and hope in you. God's name would be representative of all that God is. God's character, God's nature, God's works. That's his name. So David... And this is one of those instances where we can say, yeah, we we want to be like that. We want to trust in the steadfast love of God. We want to hope in the promises of God forever and ever. We want to thank and praise God forever because of what he's done. And we want to wait on and hope in the Lord. Which brings us now, friends, to the three huge themes, the three major themes that I want us to consider together from this psalm. They come right out of it. The first of those three themes is the perfect justice of God that will be administered. The perfect justice of God 
that will be administered. You see in the, the words of Psalm 52, an inspired writer of Scripture responding to an act of horrific evil. Mass slaughter of people made in God's image. A terrible thing has been done. And God, through David, says, I'm, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to break this evil man down forever. I will take his life in due time. It's great comfort. It is a great comfort, I should say, to us. It should be anyway. That in the courtroom of God, there will be no things unknown. There will be no things unseen. Because in the courtrooms and in the justice systems of our world, as good as we aim for them to be, they are far from perfect. In the courtrooms in our world, verdicts can often be determined as much by what is not known as by what is known. But praise be to God that that will not be true in His courtroom. He sees everything. He knows everything. And He sees and knows everything as those things really are. He's not deceived by anything. He sees through every facade. He sees right to the bottom of every false word. He knows what's up. And He executes perfect justice. His punishment always fits the crime. That's not true in our world. Every wrong. This, just continue to think about God's justice. Every single wrong that has ever been done will be made right. Because see, God alone has power to do that. Because take for example when, when murder happens. When somebody's life is taken. Even if that person who has committed the crime is sentenced and his or her own life is taken, the life of the victim can never be restored in terms of this life. But God is not so limited in the ways that he executes and administers his justice. There is great comfort in knowing this. There is also something very satisfying in it too. Like There's something in us that craves justice, that craves real justice. Meaningful, eternal, lasting justice. We desire that wrongs would be made right. We desire that people who have done wicked things would be punished. Our hearts ache for that. It's part of being made in God's image. God made us in such a way that we desire justice. Because He is a just and righteous and holy God. It's a great thing to think of the fact that God in His time, in His way, will make all things new. And in making all things new, everything will be made perfectly just. It's a great promise. It's a great hope. Which brings us to the second major theme I want us to consider. This one will take more time than the first. The second major theme for our consideration is the steadfast love of God. That fits perfectly with his justice. Say that again. The steadfast love of God that fits perfectly with his justice. So, have you ever considered that the perfect justice of God and the steadfast love of God embrace each other in the person and work of Jesus Christ? The perfect justice of God and the steadfast love of God. 
embrace each other in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I was prepping the, this sermon and I was thinking about that reality, I was in one sense moved and in one sense convicted. Like we, we should be more than we are and praise God when we are. Like, are you not thankful for Jesus? What he has accomplished, who he is, and the fact that God in perfect righteousness saves a people through him. He did it to him be the glory and the praise. Jesus is, as we often think about together, he is the fulfillment and the accomplisher of every single one of God's promises. All of them. He fulfills them. He accomplished all of them. And then the Holy Spirit applies them to us through faith. Jesus is the embodiment of everything that God is. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is like full stop. Jesus is the greatest being and the greatest treasure in the world. Jesus came in steadfast love for His people. What were the motivations? This is one of them. Steadfast love of God for the people of God resulted in the coming of the Son of God. Jesus came, God the Son took on flesh 2,000 years ago and became the God-man, Jesus. He came to fulfill all righteousness for you and for me. He lived a perfect life, spotless life, He obeyed God's law in every conceivable way. He came to live that perfect life. You realize that his life was 33 years. His life did not start the week of the passion. There's a reason for that. His perfect life was necessary. Because God had made a covenant with Adam, the very first human being, and told Adam, here's what you are to do, you and your wife. You are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and cultivate it. You are to eat of anything. I've given you so many good things to eat. You're to eat of anything that you want, but don't go there. Don't go there. Don't eat there. And as a result of human rebellion, that covenant between God and Adam was broken. Adam sinned. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against God's good authority. They did what God told them not to do. They broke the covenant that God had made with them. And therefore, judgment happened in measure. The judgment happened in measure. We call it the fall of man, the curse that was put on Adam and Eve and the entire creation. You see, that, that covenant of works that God made with Adam is crucial because at the, toward the end of Genesis chapter 3, in which that horrible sin happened, there's another promise that God makes. There's another covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve in the 15th verse of Genesis 3 when He promises one who will come, who will come from the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, the enemy, the deceiver of God's people. And from that point forward, there's this great unfolding of another covenant, the covenant of redemption that God made. And this is why it was so essential for Jesus to come and live a perfect life. Because where Adam failed in that original covenant of works, Jesus would succeed. In every way that Adam fell, Jesus would be victorious. 
Adam had everything going for him. It was a paradise. There was really no wickedness around him. It was awesome. Jesus came into a wasteland. Adam, with all the benefits, fell. Jesus, with nothing going for him, succeeded. Praise be to his name. We were in need of a righteousness that we don't have. So not only did we need our sin atoned for, did we need our slate wiped clean, but we needed a perfect life of perfect obedience to God's word. And Jesus accomplished that. He did that because of his steadfast love for his people. He came and lived that perfect life for 33 years. And we are told in Scripture that if we trust in Christ and turn from our own goodness and our own righteousness and trust in Jesus, His righteousness is counted to us by faith. It's that great exchange, that first part of that great exchange. We get His righteousness. His perfect life is counted to me. But then Jesus also came in steadfast love to take the perfect justice of God for us. So not only did He come to fulfill all righteousness, He came to take the perfect justice of God in our place. Now that's a mind blower. That God the Son came to receive the perfect justice of God so that all of God's people would not have to receive it. The perfect justice and the righteous wrath of God Jesus took in full in our place because that's what we deserved to bear. And because God is just and righteous and holy and doesn't sweep sin under the rug and will only save in a way that's righteous in coordination with the rest of His perfect character, this atoning sacrifice was necessary. And then Jesus also in steadfast love came and rose triumphantly from the grave. He defeated sin forever. He defeated death forever. He defeated, defeated excuse me, Satan forever. And so, when we come to Jesus in faith, we're told in Scripture that we are united to Him. We are united to Him by faith. When we come to Jesus in faith, through faith, we are considered in Him. It's, again, the most common way that Christians are referred to in the New Testament. In Christ. In Him. So what does that mean? What does that mean with respect to these things? It means that, as we've already thought about in part, His perfect life is counted to me. Really. It's credited to me. It's as though in the eyes of God, it is as though I have lived the perfect life that Christ lived. That's counted to me by faith. I have not lived a perfect life. Neither have you. So far from it. We live imperfectly all the time. There is always sin dwelling in us, tainting even our best deeds. It's absolutely astonishing that God, through faith in His Son, would look at us and say, yes, that perfect life, that perfect record is yours. It also means to be in Christ means that his death that satisfied God's justice completely is also counted to me, to you. It's as though, so not only is it as though I lived a perfect life that I'm counted with, it's as though I died a wrath-satisfying, justice-absorbing death that I don't now have to die because Jesus did. 
It's as though I really died to pay the penalty I deserve for breaking God's law. This is how we consider this, right? In Galatians chapter 2. This is why Paul can say that through Christ we died to the law. It's really like we died. It's really like we paid the penalty. And so we are not under it anymore. We have been set free from the penalty of the law. It also means to be in Christ also means that in him, I and you will be resurrected. Our resurrection is completely tethered to Jesus. The fact that he got up from the grave. Had he not gotten up from the grave, there would be no hope that any of us would. Because it's in union with Christ that we will be raised imperishable. In Christ, we too, I mean, this, this is Bible, right? This is not arrogance. This is about Jesus now. In Christ, we too will triumph over sin. We too will triumph over Satan. We too will triumph over the grave. In Christ. Not because you've done it, but because He did it. Through Christ, this is how Paul could say in Romans 8, through Christ, we are more than conquerors, right? Through Him who loved us. Shall we fear anything? No. Because in Christ we are more than conquerors. In Christ we will be raised imperishable to live with God in the new heavens and the new earth and to behold the glory of Jesus forever. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It endures forever and ever in Christ Jesus. Which brings us now to our third and final major theme that we'll consider from our song. Theme number three is, not a great title, but here it goes. Waiting on God. That's the sermon title. I guess thereby implication, not a great title either. Major theme number three, waiting on God. Put your eyes back on verse eight of the text. You see where David says, second part of that verse, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And then again in verse 9, I will thank you forever. Verse 9, second part, I will wait for your name. I will wait, right? I will hope in you in the presence of the godly because your name, because you are good. So brothers and sisters, in this life, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, this side of the consummation of God's plan of redemption in this period that we'll often call the already but not yet, we are called to wait on God. We are called to trust in, to hope in God and in His steadfast love. This is true with respect to His justice. We have to wait on God's justice. This is hard, right? Because, as we've already considered briefly, we want to see justice meted out. And because of many of the things that our brother prayed for us this morning in confession, because we tend to think of ourselves as so good, we often arrogantly think that, yeah, I just want to see the justice of God meted out right now. Like, bring it. You know, like, I'm ready to see it. Now, if we're making that statement in Christ, that's one thing. But sadly to our shame, we often think that it would go well for us somehow if the justice of God fell down from heaven. Like, oh, it would burn up all these other people, but I'll be okay. Wrong. So anyway, back to what we're saying. 
We need to wait in this life on the justice of God. And that's hard for us. But we have to remember that it's not our prerogative to execute God's justice. We don't administer that. This is just like what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 to those believers. He's citing Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 when he reminds the Romans that God has said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Like, don't take justice and these kinds of things that are so far above your pay grade that you don't understand anyway. Do not take these things into your own hands. Trust God. Vengeance belongs to Him. He will repay. So we wait. We also wait on the Lord with respect to the ultimate outcome of His steadfast love. We wait on the Lord with respect to the ultimate outcome of His steadfast love. So this too is not easy. We face many things that are hard in this life. We face disasters of various kinds. Maybe not just we here, but we as a, a human race are even thinking about Christians globally. We face disasters, natural disasters of various kinds. We, even speaking more directly about CBC, experience accidents and sickness and calamities of various kinds. Sometimes other people wrong us and cause us great pain. This life is often characterized by suffering. It's hard often. And so we long, rightly, we wrong, or excuse me, we long for deliverance. We long to be set free, ultimately, from suffering, from evil. That's a good desire. And again, because the plan of God, the redemption of God, has been inaugurated, but it's not yet done, we wait on the Lord. We trust in Him. We hope in Him. We rest in His promises. And we remind one another that He's faithful. And that He'll deliver on every one of them. So this brings me, friends, to a couple of pastoral exhortations. A couple of pastoral exhortations to close our time with. These things, I always like to be clear. Because standing here in the place of God to deliver God's Word to us is a big deal. And I think it's entirely appropriate for preachers to take the principles of God's Word and then give proverbial or just good common sense wisdom to people. I'm confident that these things flow out of the text and flow out of Scripture. But I want to be clear that these are pastoral exhortations. This is advice and encouragement from me to you in love. So, exhortation number one. Be patient and trust God. Be patient and trust God. You'll hear me talk a lot about playing the long game. You'll hear me talk a lot, and I believe we do need to have a long-term perspective. You could even say we need to have an eternal perspective. That's very long-term, right? This is a posture. When, when I talk this way and when we talk this way, at least what I mean I'm describing a posture of trusting Christ and relying on the Holy Spirit over time. Trusting Christ and relying on the Holy Spirit over time. It's a posture also of not getting overly worked up 
about things that happen or don't happen in the short term. And I would suggest that this kind of posture is necessary for our church's life, so corporately, and also for your life as a Christian, individually. Corporately, it's important that we would have this perspective of being patient and trusting God when it comes to growth in the church. This church is growing. We praise God for that. And it's always easy to think, well, couldn't it grow faster? Be patient. Trust the Lord. It's important that we would think about this even with respect to health. So the kind of culture that we, by God's grace, are seeking to see established in the church, it has not been perfected yet. I mean, it will not be perfect this side of heaven, but we must remember that even that culture that we pray is instilled here, it's happening and it takes time. We trust God. We trust Christ. We rely upon the Spirit of God to work in the people of God and produce that kind of health. It matters for us as a church as we would think about whatever, the the kinds of structured, programmatic things that we can offer. We don't have a lot of those yet. Relative to some churches. You know, programs or like amenities or whatever. We don't have them. Amen somebody, right? So that's okay, right? Because we realize that in time those things come. They don't happen today. We realize that growth and health and even more good structured things for us to do as a church They are built and they come over the long haul. You can't microwave this, as we'll often discuss. But this matters, this posture matters for you as a Christian, as an individual believer, when it comes to your growth in the faith, when it comes to your sanctification, right? It matters in your life as an individual when it comes to the fulfillment of God's promises to you. Be patient. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Rely on the Holy Spirit to do His work in you. So the exhortation kind of continuing is, to put it another way, is let's not be short-sighted. Let's not obsess. This this matters, I think, for us. It does to me. Let's not obsess over measurables. Right? We tend to do this. We have to be able, in the American church, for some reason... We have to be able to quantify everything. We've got to be able to put a metric with it, man. Or it's like it's not real. You know, everything from like how many are you running on Sunday to how many community groups do you have, how many baptisms, how many this, how many that, how many, how many, how many, how many. Right? And friends, I would say not just with respect to a church and its health, but with respect to the Christian and your growth and your sanctification that obsession with always having to quantify everything is not how God has set it up. If you determine that you're going to have to quantify everything, including and especially including your growth in the faith, that is bondage that you are heaping upon yourself. This is almost like, I feel like I've got subpoints within subpoints going on in this sermon. I'm sorry for the note takers in the room. I try not to do this. I want to give you just a few. This is all under Exhortation 1. Be patient and trust God. Here are just five thoughts that I have on Christian growth. <laughs> I feel like this is the most absurd outline I've ever put together. A few thoughts on Christian growth from me. One, 
We should strive and pray for it. If we're not striving and praying for growth, we've got a problem. We need to have another conversation. Two, it can be observed. It can be observed most often by other Christians. So obviously I'm talking about Christian growth here in your life. It can be observed most often by other believers. Three, it is near impossible, near impossible to quantify it. Number four, great damage is done when we try to quantify it. Number five, most importantly, the vast majority of the eternally spiritually good things that will happen in our lives will happen over a long time as we trust Christ and rely upon the Holy Spirit to do His good work in us. There is freedom in that, brothers and sisters. God will complete His work in you. He will complete the good work that He has started. Be patient. Trust God. Press on. Brings me to my second pastoral exhortation. So we've kind of indented left or whatever in the outline. This one is short. Exhortation number two from me to you. Don't try to answer every question, but rather point people to the faithfulness of God. Do not try to answer every question. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But point people to the faithfulness of God. So, when people go through hard things, which we do on the regular, that generally produces and prompts in us really like deep, hard questions. Real ones. Like, I pray we never are dismissive and condescending and just like scoff at people whose hearts are broken and are asking real questions. Shame on us if we ever do that. So, hard circumstances, trials and suffering produce these real deep, like heart-level questions and wrestlings of the soul. And our tendency, we mean well, we mean well, but our tendency in the church is so often to overreach and overread the providence of God and overread the mind of God when we try to answer the questions of our struggling brothers and sisters. So we will even abuse a text like Romans 8.28, for example. God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Is that a great promise? You better believe it is. But does that promise pertain to all of your circumstances? No. No. What I mean by that is that you can't sit and say, well, Romans 8.28, man, God's going to work this for your good, so I'm sure that whatever you're going through, it's going to work itself out just fine. It might not circumstantially. That's not what the promise is about. The promise is eternal. The promise is ultimate, right? That in Christ Jesus, God will work all things for the eternal and everlasting good of everyone who has been called according to his purpose, whom God loves. That is rock under our feet. But we abuse that verse when we start trying to figure out what God is doing in every minute circumstance. How often do we have that conversation? Well, the Lord's up to something here. I wish I could figure it out. You might not. And God is faithful. God is true. His faithfulness has nothing to do with your ability to figure out what He's doing. So let's not do that. Right? Let's not go there. Let's, instead of doing that, instead of trying to overread providence and assume that I know the mind of God for your life, Instead of doing that, let's point one another to the character of God. 
Let's point one another to the promises, the eternal promises of God in Christ. Like, brother, I don't know exactly why you're going through this. I don't. I'm really sorry that you are. I know this is terrible. I want to help you. I realize I'm limited in my ability to help you. I can't speak to exactly what has brought this about because I'm not the Lord. But I can promise you that God is true. And I can promise you that God is faithful. And I can promise you that He will deliver you ultimately in Christ Jesus. And you can pillow your head on that. Let's encourage one another in hard circumstances to trust Christ. It's one of the greatest things we could ever say to each other in a time of trial. I know that this is really terrible and I want to help you in every practical way I can. And through it all, brother, sister, trust Christ. Let's pray for one another. Through suffering and hard times and through the hard questions and the anguish of the soul. Let's pray for one another and exhort one another that we might have faith. The Christian life is always about the battle for faith. To believe God in the things that he has revealed in his word. And in all of this, may we say that I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Not just today. Not just next week, forever. May we say that I will thank you forever because you, God, have done it. Not just today, not just next year, but forever. May we say that, God, I will wait for your name. I will wait on you. I will hope in you in the presence of the godly because you're good and you're faithful. Those who wait on the Lord will never be disappointed. Those who trust in Christ and take refuge in Him will never be put to shame because Jesus has promised to deliver and Jesus never fails. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You and ask for Your help by Your Spirit that these things that we've been considering might be true in us. That we might hope in You and wait on You and rest in Your promises regardless of what our circumstances look like. We pray that you would give us grace by your spirit, that we would lift our eyes from the horizon of our circumstances to see through those to you and to your goodness and your faithfulness and your sovereignty and your promises that you have made to us. We pray that we as a church would encourage one another in the faith that we would pray for and exhort one another, that we might trust You. Father, we know that You are made to look glorious when Your children trust You in the midst of hardship and in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial. And we know that we can't produce that in us, so we ask You to work that in us by Your Spirit. We pray that you would remind us anew today of the promises that you have made to us in Christ, even as we come now to the Lord's table. And we pray all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, friends, we are.